Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and today I'm here with Aaron Woods. And uh, Aaron is uh, going to talk to us today about his experience and insight into Israel and Palestinians in Israel. But uh, Aaron, just a little bit, introduce us, tell us, now you're a student at Asbury. Tell us what you're doing at Asbury. Fill us in a little bit about, uh, give us some context. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It's It's a privilege to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm a student at Asbury Theological Seminary. I'm a PhD student there uh, working on uh, a degree in biblical studies, but my focus is on the Old Testament. So my dissertation, one day, I'm not quite at that place yet, I'm still in my coursework, will be something on the, uh, the Old Testament. Just finished my second year of coursework, and um, actually just got back from Jerusalem. I was taking a class there, a geography and historical settings class there. So I've, I've been to the land multiple times, and it's always a joy when I get a chance to Talk about my experience there, so I'm looking forward to this. Is it the interest in the Old Testament that took you to Jerusalem, or is it vice versa that you kind of had uh, that interest already? And so, uh, how how did you end up there? Yeah, that's a great question. I think these things kind of feed into each other. I mean, just even as a Christian, you read about all these places in the Bible your entire life, and to get the opportunity to go there, I just the first time that I went. Um, was actually with uh, on a scholarly tour with Max Miller, J. Maxwell Miller. He's a, a great historian from Emory, a biblical studies Old Testament guy. And we did this three-week-long tour of Jordan, Israel-Palestine, Jerusalem, and then Greece. And just seeing the places that I'd read about my entire life, I mean, it just dramatically changed how I read Scripture. You know, most times when we read the Bible and... You know, we, we read uh, at the beginning of stories, there's usually location details, and we often tend to skip those. But I think after anybody who's gone there and seen some of these places, the stories really come alive. You know, they really it adds a whole other layer of, of meaning and interest. And so now where I used to skip all the interesting geographical details, now I'm like glued in. Okay, I know all of these stories had to happen in a place. So where did they happen and what's the connection? And you know, it's just anytime that you get to go there, I think it just adds more meaning to the stories. How long were you there? You were teaching. Describe the school then that you were teaching. And as I understand, you were teaching Palestinian children in Jerusalem. Is that correct? Yeah. So after I went there and toured the first time, I just fell in love with the land and the people. And um, a couple years later, in the fall of 2016, 2017, I spent 11 months there teaching at a Palestinian school with majority Muslim students in um, East Jerusalem in a neighborhood called Beit Hanina. You got to get the Hanina. It's, uh, so it's, it's in the greater Jerusalem kind of municipality, but it's technically in East Jerusalem, but it's actually north of the old city of Jerusalem. Geography in, in Jerusalem can get, can get kind of uh, hectic and, and confusing, but if, if you're familiar with it, it's, it's actually east of the green line that's, that was originally drawn to separate you know, Israel from Palestine, but west of the, the border wall there. So it's kind of in this in-between land, not too far from Kalandia, if people are familiar with, with the area. So yeah, I taught at a Palestinian school in Jerusalem, 
teaching high school. Like I said, most of the students there, probably 85, 90% of the students come from Muslim families, and the others are Christian or atheist or what have you. And it's a Christian school. And so I taught, uh, I went over to kind of teach like life of Christ and ethics and kind of biblical study stuff. But a lot of the teachers there who teach history and English and things are volunteer. And the volunteer who, who was supposed to come teach American history kind of fell through. So I was kind of handed that class, American history. I also taught geography to ninth graders. I taught a conflict resolution class, a small class on kind of Middle East and Palestinian history, and a class on conflict resolution. So it was it was quite the task. It's strange that you would have Muslim children coming to a Christian school. How how did that come about? Mostly just because it's an English speaking school and the school has a really good reputation in the the area for getting students into colleges and universities in the US and in other places international. The school is originally started by a guy named Ross Byers in in the late 80s and 87. And he was actually sent um, to work there as an Assemblies of God missionary. And he worked there as a missionary for a while and saw the need for a school just for missionary kids. Uh, while their parents were doing ministry, he wanted to start this, this education system and eventually just kind of grew into what it is today. And there's two locations, one in Beit Hanina and one outside of Bethlehem and Beit Jala. And the school is about a thousand or so students throughout all of their campuses. So it's got a really good reputation. And a lot of the students who go there, their parents either went to school in Europe or in the U.S. or Canada, and they wanted their students to have an education with that kind of background. Would it be wrong to describe them as cultural elites? That is, these are probably not children from lower class Muslim families, but children that come from uh, more cosmopolitan families. Yeah, I would say more cosmopolitan families, although that's not uh, the case throughout. I'd say the majority of students' families uh, you know, can afford the tuition and have some kind of international connection and things like that. Or, But some of the families, we do offer scholarships to some students whose parents either can't afford it or um, so it's it's a it's a pretty good mix actually, but yeah, I would say that's right that the majority of the students are a little bit more cosmopolitan. Their parents a little bit more have some kind of connection interaction, you know, with the West, or you know, they have a, a brother who lives in the U.S. and you know, so lots of lots of family connections. As I understand it now, and I need to explain here that Aaron did a presentation for us at the Stone Campbell Journal, a presentation which I was in charge of recording and I lost the recording. So that's what, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm mm -hmm. referring to here. But in your presentation, if I remember, you described that the uh, teaching in the school is uh, uh, nonviolent. It is. The curriculum has basically been kind of baptized, as I like to say, into this conflict resolution and nonviolence. This, the vision for the school is to create um, a place where students can study and, and transform their imaginations after nonviolence into peace. Give us some examples then of peace heroes or organizations that ha this has actually unfolded. school developed this curriculum. Um, they recognized early on they really were wanting to capture um, and look at nonviolent uh, movements around the world. And so Ross Byers, the principal of the school, hired uh, Ali Pritz and some others to work on this, what, what they were developing, and it's eventually called the Peace Heroes Curriculum. 
So at the Jerusalem School, they have four major peace heroes, and they also have several others who they look at. But the four major peace heroes that they look at are Jesus Christ, you know, and his ministry and witness uh, and nonviolence and loving your enemies and things like that. Um, they also look at Gandhi and and the work that he did in India. And each each time that they look at these, you know, I taught the geography class, and anytime we'd get to a new country or things, we'd look at sort of the peaceful aspects of that. So when we studied India, we looked at, you know, Gandhi's world and, you know, the, the world of imperialism that he was in and how we responded to that. And so then they could under, the students could understand this is not just some idea, but it has real world impacts. So um, Jesus, Gandhi, and we also looked at Martin Luther King Jr. and looked at the civil rights movement and kind of the, uh, the impetus and things that drove him and, and how he responded and his incredible stories um, to responding to you know, white uh, supremacists and, and, and how they worked to bring about a lasting change. And the last one was new for me. Um, it was a, um, a guy named Abdul Ghaffar Khan or Basha Khan. Um, he was a, um, a Pakistani uh, leader uh, in, um, amongst the Pashtun people. And if people aren't familiar with the Pashtuns, the Pashtuns are the same people who are, are responsible for kind of the source for Al-Qaeda. You know, and these, these folks had a very, very proud people who were very passionate and very much um, a vengeance kind of people. If you harm you know, my family, I'm going to do greater harm to your family. And uh, Basha Khan took this kind of strong passion and energy and transformed it into what they called um, uh, Khan's army. And they had all these, you know, uh, and this is a Muslim uh, 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 ministry and a Muslim uh, people group. And so he worked with Gandhi um, and uh, learned, they learned from each other and practiced each other. He was actually called the Frontier Gandhi. But his focus was on creating this army of kind of people who were uh, uh, of peace and were, they had like all these requirements of, of prayer and what they had to do for um, being a part of, of that. But they were really very passionate and concerned about nonviolence and how they could kind of make right a lot of things that they were known for doing wrong. And so it's a really incredible story of, of a people group who seemed only bent on vengeance and violence and were kind of transformed by one of their own, um, Basha Khan. It's a really incredible story. That was one of the most um, uh, greatest gifts I think I received from the school was learning about the ministry of, of Abdul Ghaffar Khan. And so what you're describing is that you have a, a, a variety of religious traditions that are arriving at an understanding of peace. So for somebody like Basha Khan, what, tell, explain how he, how would he have, is it through Gandhi? Is it through, is it a resource that he found in the Quran or in Islam itself that he's able to found a notion of peaceableness as primary. Yeah, his his story is really interesting. I mean, from what I remember, he began and he was he's actually arrested for a while he was working on, on these kinds of things. And one of the ways that he really kind of gained a lot of respect from these Muslim people was that he didn't try to escape this prison. And he kind of said, you know, I'm responsible for my actions. I'm taking responsibility for them. And he just kind of stayed in prison for a while. And people really re learned to respect his, his ministry because he kind of had this street cred for the things that he'd had done and the ways that he had suffered and, and kind of gone uh, through this. But he really wanted to raise the consciousness of his people and organize them to be a people who were committed to peace. And he used some of the Muslim tradition to kind of to do this. But yes, he worked a lot with Gandhi 
and he they worked uh, to create this kind of peaceful army that they called uh, Khan's army. And they, they really looked at it as a form of active resistance and nonviolence as a, as a powerful weapon. I mean, he was known as saying, I'm going to give you a weapon that the police and these armies, they can't take away from you. It's a weapon of the prophet and, and you know, they're not going to be able to remove this from you. He saw it as, as a power that, you know, no one else could take from them because it was an internal kind of thing. So he saw um, really the effectiveness of that and kind of worked to formulate this kind of unit. And this was, this was in, during the time when Fort Pakistan was kind of separated from India. He is from that general area of what is now called Pakistan. That's very insightful. You know, if, as you're describing this, I was thinking of many reasons that one might advocate peaceableness. I know Stanley Harris, for example, is sort of critical of the notion that it is a, a, a kind of pragmatic, mm-hmm. you know, in the end it may not be. But what, what you're describing is, in fact, that at some deep level, mm-hmm. that peaceableness and love is, in fact, something that no one can take from you. Yeah. And so that it does, in fact, function as at least a workable alternative. Mm-hmm. That is, it is the preferable alternative mm-hmm. to, to yeah. violence and death. Yeah. And that was, that was very, you know, powerful for him because he saw and learned, you know, from a lot of Gandhi's teachings and saw really um, the power that they had to, you know, fight back against these kind of these imperial armies and things that were seeking to control. India and Pakistan, those kind of areas. And yeah, he really saw the the effectiveness of it. And at the school, you know, we we did try to land the focus on nonviolence in the person of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we did talk about in a, in a very kind of, you know, historical, more secular sense that of the 41 nonviolent revolutions that have occurred all over the world, and n- many of them were not explicitly Christian, and so we studied them and looked at, or the students studied them and looked at kind of what made them tick, you know? And so they looked at like Northern Ireland and South Africa and Tunisia and, you know, Haiti, Ghana, all, a lot of these different countries that have had these, you know, some of them are larger movements, some of them are smaller movements. So they really dug deep. And I, I did not know all about a lot of these, you know, movements. My kind of teaching focused more on what I had known, like with King and Gandhi and and Jesus and things like that. So I had learned a lot from these students, you know, who had been studying these movements and things and understanding their, their, their in, in, in one sense, their secular effectiveness of bringing about social change. And I assume that if you do a bit of history, and, and you will know more about this, that the history of nonviolence, that as you describe somebody like Gandhi, it's not that you have a singular tradition, you know, how do right. you imagine where does, where does a person like Gandhi come from or, or a peace movement? It's not that these things occur in isolation, but there are streams of thought that seem to always get intertwined. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with Martin Luther King's you know, experience with Gandhi and, and, you know, so there is, there's this kind of passing on to this tradition. And so the school in many ways is trying to tap into that and really kind of get the students to understand the kind of logic of nonviolence and kind of what that looks like. Um, And I would say, I mean, it is a high school. It is, you know, classes that the students are required to take. Um, But I've, I've been impressed having taught some of the classes, obviously with any school, you know, some kids really get it. Some kids are very excited about it. They understand it and they're, you know, really passionate about it. And then, of course, you have kids who say, 
you know, yeah, you know, that might have worked in this country, that country, but that's not going to work today, you know. And so we even studied kind of more present nonviolent um, movements and things and like uh, like the water protectors, the Native Americans, who how, how they use, you know, nonviolence to try and preserve different things. And so it was a really an amazing uh, curriculum that the school has really developed. And they've actually launched it, Ellie Pritz and um, the, the Peace Heroes curriculum. They've launched it in in Kenya, if I, I believe that's correct. I believe it's in Kenya as well. And uh, so they're 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 moving this curriculum other countries to see how um, students respond. You know, they're very careful to do their homework, and they also study local nonviolent movements. So even here in, in or sorry in Jerusalem, they study some leaders and things who've done responded to violence with nonviolence and responded to conflict with peace and you know, to, just to try and inspire people's imaginations um, to work towards nonviolence and not towards violence. Describe a little bit then. You're in the middle of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Where would be the zone where they would cross from Palestinian territory into uh, Israeli territory? So a lot of the students come from the greater Jerusalem area itself. Probably the majority of the students come from Beit Hanina and some of the surrounding neighborhoods there on the Israeli side of the wall. Um, but we do get, even some of our teachers, uh, a number of them come through Kalandia, uh, which is, if you draw a line from Jerusalem to Ramallah, that's the main kind of a checkpoint they go through. But we also have several students who live in the Bethlehem area and they go through that checkpoint, checkpoint 300 there. And so sometimes if the students uh, were late and uh, it was a busy day or some kind of demonstration at the checkpoint, we would just like, all right, it's excused, you know, I mean, we understand uh, some of the difficulties of the crossing. So, so that, but that was a good handful of students, a minority of students. Most of them came from the greater Jerusalem area, but we did get a number of students from the Palestinian side of the wall, like Ramallah neighborhoods areas, and then also to the south of Jerusalem, the Bethlehem, and kind of that, that kind of greater area there. And so in, in this, this is an interesting mix. You have Muslim children being taught uh, nonviolence in Jerusalem, but did you also have Jewish children studying nonviolence? At our school, it's not as common. There have been Jewish students who've attended in the past but usually younger grades they're usually like they might take their elementary school there but because of where our neighborhood is it's it's in a primarily muslim neighborhood although there is a, a very large settlement neva yakov uh nearby but they have their own school where they have their education i don't i'm not as familiar with a lot of the separate israeli the school system but our school the jerusalem school is accredited by both the palestinian ministry of education and the israeli ministry of education they have to walk kind of a fine line of how they do i mean even like holidays and and things like that begin to be very complicated because they celebrate the palestinian holidays but then they're also required by the government of israel to celebrate the jewish holidays and uh so we get a lot of days off and uh at the school um so all that cultural mix and you know so we have the christian muslim and jewish holidays all being celebrated at, at different times and things so it makes for a really interesting cultural mix but there weren't any jewish students in the high school when i was there could you describe a bit then for a, a jewish person what would be the various mixes of politics and religion feeding into a jewish perspective there's a lot of diversity amongst jews and palestinians uh, frankly about 
you know, politics and things. And I should also say, we do have some Jewish teachers at the school, a teacher there. She teaches biology and does a lot of like creative art and things like that with some of the younger kids. And um, but also teaches at the high school. So we do have a mix. We might not have any Jewish students in the high school, but we do have Jewish teachers who teach in the high school. So, I mean, she obviously uh, has a lot of sympathy with nonviolence and, and peace and with and then with therefore the Palestinian uh, kind of perspectives and things. But as far as, you know, I, I mean, the politics there are really interesting. I mean, I met Palestinians who in the classroom, the first question they want you to answer after, you know, what's your name, where are you from? is what do you call this land? Is it Palestine or is it Israel? Is it all Palestine or is it all Israel? And the students themselves, I mean, we did have some students who were very much more sympathetic to the Israeli you know, uh, perspective, political perspective on that and said, this land is called Israel. And I met some students who, so I, I was there during the uh, election of 2016 uh, when Trump was elected. And so there were a lot of students, a good handful of students who were very pro-Trump and in their kind of political leanings and some obviously that were very much against him. And so it was just even amongst this uh, kind of Palestinian school, there were so many different political perspectives and viewpoints and some very heated arguments. And it was very interesting politically to be a part of this, especially as an American. I mean, there I mean, we, and I taught American history. And so, you know, we would often take breaks to talk about and discuss American politics and how that played into the view. Because in a lot of ways, America has a lot of sway and impact on the lives of these Palestinians and what they do and how they, how they function. I mean, while I was there, President Obama announced that he had signed uh, a renewing of a $38 billion uh, military aid package to the government of Israel, where he'd give $3.8 billion a year to the government of Israel to upgrade their jets and all this kind of stuff. So they very much cared about what Americans thought about Palestinians and how they functioned and what they were doing because it's a huge impact in, in the discussion around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I wonder, you know, the perception, and maybe it's not a correct perception, that you go from uh, President Obama to President Trump. You would have thought that there would have been at least a greater deal of sympathy for the Palestinian cause under an Obama presidency. Mm -hmm. But is that not the case? It's difficult. I mean, to some degree, yes. Obama was more sympathetic in his uh, speeches and things towards the uh, Palestinian people. But I don't know that, that necessarily that there was a strong impact that was felt on the ground. The settlements in the West Bank, which international law deems as illegal, continue to grow with um, President Obama. Um, like I said, this aid package again was signed. And so it was maybe more of a conversational piece that Obama, yeah, sure, he, he seemed to care about the Palestinian perspective and wasn't pushing so much like Trump is for a resolution that favors Israel more often than the Palestinians. But on the ground, there is still a lot of settlement expansion, you know, this enormous aid package that is, I think, the biggest aid package given to any country in history, I think, I mean, as far as the, the size of it. Yeah, there might have been more sympathies towards the Palestinian people, but Obama was not the Palestinian hero that maybe some hoped that he would be to bring, you know, kind of bring peace and things like that. Now under Trump, I mean, Trump is, you know, uh, is very much interested in allying with Israel 
and, you know, making sure that they're well taken care of. I mean, but interestingly enough, early on in Trump's presidency, there was a lot of problems. He created a lot of issues with Israel because, you know, his first international uh, visit was to Saudi Arabia. And then he flew to Israel while we were there. And of course, we hear all the local news about what's happening. And Trump's people, when they were originally approached by the Israeli government to, to plan his trip to the Western Wall, which is, again, on the east side of the Green Line, Trump's people originally said, hey, that's east of the Green Line, that's Palestinian territory, we'll talk to them about that. And of course, it made a huge uproar with Netanyahu and his, his government. They demanded an apology. And originally, Trump's people didn't apologize. And they said, no, we're going to work with the Palestinians. And then, you know, eventually they sort of figured it out and apologized. And so I think through Trump's ignorance and um, his not knowing, there was a little bit of, of kind of hope almost stirred up. Maybe through his kind of, you know, idiocracy or something in, in its political leanings, he might actually do some good here. But um, that's turned out not to be the case uh, generally. So you, you never know whether you prefer a complete idiot or someone who is much more clever but diabolical. And as of yet, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just <laughs> pre yeah. preferable. Yeah. But he did then move the embassy, right? What reaction did that get? Yeah. It did create a lot of trouble. And so I was just there uh, through the month of June. And uh, there was some, while, while you're in a different country, you know, the American consulate, wherever they, the embassy, they send you notifications on if there's you know, demonstrations or danger. And they sent us, while I was just there in this last June, you know, like warning, these three days, there's going to be anti-American protests in Jerusalem. So be careful. Don't go to the old city. Don't do all this, which is not very nuanced. I mean, the demonstrations were really against this specific presidency and this specific move by the president. It wasn't anti-American. It creates a lot of trouble uh, symbolically in the sense that both Israel and Palestinians both claim Jerusalem as their capital. A lot of international nations have kind of de facto said, well, Tel Aviv is where we're going to hold our embassy and because we don't want to cause problems because Jerusalem is, is supposed to be a big part of the peace process. And so for Trump to, you know, kind of just shift uh, a major shift in, in kind of the history of American politics of how we've responded to this question, it's kind of shifted to say, no, we're going to move it anyway. And it's a small actual move. I mean, there's a consulate in Jerusalem. So really all it does is it changes the sign outside, but it changes that the ambassador now works not from Tel Aviv, but from Jerusalem. So that those are the only like really practical changes, but it's huge um, symbolically. It's basically, you know, he's not counting the Palestinians as a partner in conversations, um, in peace conversations. And that's kind of the major aspect that Trump has been leaving out in the whole Kind of peace process is that he doesn't really consider the Palestinians as any kind of partners in the peace process. And even the more recent, you know, his his son-in-law working to create this, you know, master plan or whatever it is, he like the input that he's had from Palestinians has been null. But even from the Israeli government, he's had not a lot of, of input there. And so there's a lot of concern whether this plan is a plan that's mostly favorable to Israel. And then it says Palestinians, if you don't accept this, then you're not accepting peace which is a tactic that's been used time and time again to kind of blame the peace rejection on the Palestinians because they don't get anything that's working for them. And, you know, that's not true peace. In the recent years, it seems like the radicalization that was taking place among Palestinian Muslims 
at least you do not hear as much of that sort of radicalization, but maybe that's just a perceptual difference. Yeah, I think the most, the in recent years, even the more radical versions of the political parties and, you know, say like Hamas and Gaza, I think they're beginning to understand, I think that they're beginning to understand that the power of nonviolence, I mean, the great march of return that's been happening, you know, at the Gaza border there, um, I think they're beginning to understand that there's a lot of power in nonviolence because the Israeli government, they're not, they don't care about nonviolence. That's not their tactic. You know, their tactic is guns, military, and might. And so if Palestinians continue to respond to that with nonviolence, that is a really huge chip that they can gain international favor and in those kind of aspects. I mean, it's not holistic. I mean, Hamas still says in their, you know, their founding documents that their goal is to wipe Israel off the map. But I think they're coming to their senses more in understanding that this these people are not going away, you know, which is good. I mean, we want, you know, a good peaceful resolution is two people living in peace together where both of them have the proper resources, rights, and things that they need. And, you know, peace is not one people group living on top of another group, which seems to be the kind of peace that the Israeli government continues to push forward that's constantly rejected by the Palestinians. So I I think, hopefully, that the movement of nonviolence that's throughout, I mean, uh, the school, the Jerusalem school, is just one aspect of a lot of nonviolent groups and uh, things that are happening in the land. You know, one of the things that I did when I when I was before I went, it was I just tried to research. Okay, what other organizations focus on nonviolence and try to bring people together and do really kind of peaceful acts? And there's some really amazing organizations, and I think one of the most powerful ones is I can't remember the name of the organization, but it's a group for mothers who have lost sons on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, who they come together and mourn together and try and work through how we can live together and not, I mean, no one wants to lose a child, you know? And so that's a powerful group, I think, and their witness is very, very strong and their voice is very strong. So there are a lot of groups who are working on nonviolence and they recognize the power in that. So, and I, and I think as, as, a, as a Christian, a lot Christianity has a lot to offer on that. But unfortunately, a lot of the time, we just are outshined by the maybe more politically minded, more militant minded kind of Zionists that are amongst uh, Christians. Yeah, speak to that a little bit, because here you have, as I understand, this school was started by an assembly. It was the Assemblies of God. Yeah, yeah. And so you normally don't associate Assemblies of God uh, with nonviolence, but would I mean, my impression would be, well, here would be a typical evangelical. In other words, evangelicalism, it, it is part of the problem. It's not part of the solution in the way that we usually look at this. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I don't understand Ross Byers. It, he was sent here by, sent there by the Sons of God. His his story is really interesting. I mean, he comes from the South. T- to me, I just don't know how he made it out as a kind of peace-loving kind of person. I mean, he he started the school during the first, uh, it was actually just before the first Intifada. So he has all these, you know, crazy stories of the ways that he responded to different things and things that he learned. But yeah, so I, I also grew up in the Assemblies of God, and it is not currently known as a peace tradition. It does um, not shine necessarily in that regard. However, early on, in the Assemblies of God movement, like many of these kind of early Pentecostal movements from Azusa Street, they were deeply entrenched in the peace of Christ and deeply entrenched in 
nonviolent. So much so that a lot of uh, missionaries and pastors went to jail during the First World War because they were conscientious objectors. So there is a strong history in the Sons of God of nonviolence and peace in there, but it's it's not often known. But it is it is at the root um, hmm. of there. That's sort of the irony, you know, of the Christian churches, which you're probably also familiar with. That yes, yes. There is a history of nonviolence that, you know, the majority, I think, of the founders of the Restoration Movement were pacifists. Yeah. But that is almost completely obliterated, I guess. I did a, a paper while I was at in seminary, um, at a main Christian seminary on um, kind of early pacifism in the, and I was shocked and surprised to learn um, about David Lipscomb and, you know, Campbell and Stone's early pacifism. And, well, you know, Campbell had kind of a mixed, he was kind of a mixed bag on that, but especially, you know, Lipscomb and um, to, you know, really defied the state in many ways. And, you know, their focus was on Christ. And, you know, as a unity movement, it, it made sense that they would be so dedicated to that. And I do think there are aspects of the pacifism in the restoration movement that are continuing. You know, I think of one of my favorite books on discipleship is called Mere Discipleship by Lee Camp, you know, and it kind of takes that, he takes David Lipscomb and a couple other heroes of, 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 of his own uh, and their stance on pacifism and brings that to discipleship. What does that mean for ethics and practices in the church to be nonviolent? And he takes, you know, Jesus's ethic of nonviolence as normative so there are there are some shining moments, um, but yeah, I think you're definitely right that they're they're rare. You know, they're definitely more rare these days. I I always am trying to get my footing in this because you know I presume that the, the it, it is a, a failed I don't know what you know, a failed theology and your failed theologies intermixed with a failed you know just socially the events of the going back even to the Civil War World War One may have in fact aided pacifism more than it harmed it but then world war ii yeah. by the time that ends it's it's nearly obliterated mm -hmm. from my perspective if you're a christian yeah that you probably don't want to kill people yeah. you probably shouldn't that is it's just a natural teaching of the new testament mm -hmm. and so to be uh, dispossessed of that understanding in some way the culture has co-opted it and of course in this in our discussion about Israel and Palestine. I can't imagine where this plays in in a more important way than the history of this this conflict. That was one of the things that really led me to to go over to Jerusalem because in my kind of undergraduate studies, I you know rereading scripture, rereading the Bible, and kind of coming to this understanding that nonviolence and peace is not something that is added or subtracted from Christianity, but it seems to be, in my perspective, such a fundamental aspect of Jesus's ministry and a fundamental aspect of what we have been called to do as believers and, you know, to pick up our crosses and to live a life that the world rejects. And because it rejects that often, you know, if we're living it correctly, that it's often met with conflict and violence and rejection. And so when I began to kind of get the nonviolence bug. It was kind of like, it's easy to be, you know, nonviolent as a young person in the U.S. because, you know, there's not a lot of conflict around me. I mean, my early understanding of, of nonviolence is when, when my brother hit me, I would hit him harder so he wouldn't hit me again, you know. It's like, <laughs> that was my understanding of we're going to make peace, you know. And so once I began to understand the deeper impact of the, and really the power, I mean, uh, I shared in that paper an amazing quote by 
Martin Luther King Jr., where he talks about the power that nonviolence can have and that not only is it is it going to win the freedom for African-Americans and their rights and things, but he also talks about the, the capacity to wear people down. You know, he says, he says, but be assured we will wear you down talking to people who are attacking them by our capacity to suffer. And, you know, he says we will one day win our freedom. But the aspect of, he also talks about, we will so appeal to your conscience and your heart that we will win you in the process. By our suffering, you will see the power of love and then you will be uh, kind of converted to our, to our side. And I really just began to see the power in, in nonviolence and what that meant. And that, that's what Christ is offering is we're set free from self-preservation and these kind of selfish, you know, innate desires that, um, of self-preservation. To, to live a life, a radical new life that Christ is offering us. And so once I kind of caught that bug, I thought, well, how am I going to, is this really, you know, the path I want to take and what does that mean? And so for me, it meant the Lord, you know, calling me to serve in this school where I kind of had to put my money where my mouth was and like, does this really matter? Does this really work? Is this really compelling? And and it was a, a really an amazing journey um, to go there. Yeah, as you're describing that, that I, I suppose that that's where I've come in my Christian walk, is to, to recognize that, in, in a sense, salvation is always a practical sort of salvation. There's nothing mm-hmm. mysterious about it, that what it would mean to walk like Christ is evident in that people don't get destroyed. And to have a, a Christianity that, in fact, you're just accepting the notion that violence and war and destruction of people is part of your religion, I've lost all sense that this is the faith, the religion of Christ, that it, I don't know what to call it. I mean, it's there, but it just seems to function over and against mm-hmm. New Testament Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's honestly one of the biggest challenges that more specifically the American church um, is facing today. I mean, there's a lot of hot button issues out there concerning sexuality or what have you. But for me, I mean, I think the biggest concern that I have with many of the churches that um, I've seen or been a part of, not all, there are some amazing churches out there, but is that question of nationalism. Are we pledging allegiance to Christ and his kingdom alone? Or are we sharing that allegiance with the nation state, um, this particular nation state of the United States? If we are, what are the implications of those decisions? And I really think that that is, that is one of the major questions that is facing the church. And more often than not, we've chosen to be more nationalistic and more focused on power and things like that to the detriment, I think, of our witness. So I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, and I've recently been thinking about just capitalism and the inherent. I mean, what what it comes down to, uh, especially in in a creature like Donald Trump, but I think he is representative of a kind of culmination of a politic. You know, really, we're not, it's not politics so much. It's it's money. It is the, the force of capitalism. Yeah. And that uh, compels, I think, the notion of a particular understanding, Uh, not so much some sort of broad notion, oh, we need to spread liberal democracy. No, really, what we need to do is make money. And that then gives rise to something that is... Uh, maybe even more right. diabolical than a politic on the order of a communism or socialism, 
that seems to have some way been defeated then by the god of capitalism. That's where a lot of people, towards the end of Dr. King's life, he talked about the evils of capitalism, militarism, and poverty, and racism, and things like this. And he was not popular, especially his outspoken critique of the war in Vietnam and things like that. So I think a lot of times we can kind of look at, at peace and pacifism and nonviolence as uh, kind of cute and it doesn't really have an impact. But I think especially for someone like King, peace impacted how we thought about, just as you're talking about, about money, about capitalism, about militarism, about how we treat our neighbors. And it's not just about well, are you going to kill or be killed? But it's about how you live your life every single day, how, you know, how open your home door of your home is, how hospitable you are. I think that, and that's one of the things that really attracted me to it, um, to the kind of people who were kind of these, for me, these peace heroes was their imaginations were so much different than what I was hearing. If you take Jesus's, you take the New Testament message of Jesus seriously, it changes how you think about the world. It changes how you see perpetrators changes how you respond to, to violence. And that to me was really fascinating. And then therefore, how you respond you know, to capitalism and money and self-preservation and things like that. So I think that this central thing really has a lot of ripple effects, yeah. It's an amazing, it's amazing picture that, that you're painting there. And uh, so I'm curious, Aaron, in, in the future, you're, you're pursuing a PhD. Are you hoping to pursue, continue to pursue something in this line? Yeah, I think it does definitely impact my work. And my work in ministry in Jerusalem also impacts my writing. My master's thesis was a look at Jeremiah 29, you know, the letter to the exiles. And I actually looked at, this is, I, I kind of narrated as, this is an initial turn for the kind of tradition of God's people away from a kind of nationalistic, centralized place uh, that's focused in Palestine to a sort of global, now the promised land is everywhere. And uh, that's actually a whole nother kind of ballgame. But it's really interesting because the three things that Jeremiah instructs the people to do there to build houses and live with them, plant gardens and, and grow and then get married. If we are good people of, of, of scripture, we know that in Deuteronomy 20, those three things get you out of our, our army service. If you've just built a house, you know, it says like, don't let another man enjoy it, go home, you know, live in your house. You've just built a vineyard or cultivated a vineyard. If you've just been married, I looked at it and, and talked about how, and leaned on a, a lot of others in, in their work, but how Jeremiah is basically shouting to the people, settle in the land and don't fight back against Babylon. And these promised land kind of things, do them in Babylon because now God is, you know, able to meet with you everywhere. It doesn't have to be in a certain place. And so I, I kind of looked at that as, as this is the beginning of a turn away from a landed people to a landless people and the people who focus on uh, mm. scripture and practices and, and things like this. So it, it has impacted my work. And for my future work, I do want to work in the 8th century prophets, the Amos and Hosea, the first part of Isaiah and, and Micah, and look at their ministry as a ministry to a people who are on top. You know, at this time in the 8th century, Israel is not being bothered by a lot of its neighbors. And uh, so they, it's a time of prosperity. And so the prophets, you know, are hoping this will be a time where the good news of Torah for them will shine and we can really be a living example of what what it looks like to live God's way here on earth. So that's that's kind of the time period I'm interested in because I think that really kind of applies to the U.S. today. We are a people on top, and this is a critique of a people on top. And 
So I'm interested in those kinds of questions and things. So, oh, that's very fascinating. Yeah, that, uh, and it's a direct critique, of course. And I, I presume that's what you're bringing out yeah. is that people that would presume to tie their religion then to a particular land, a particular nation, are missing the point. Even from even that that what you're describing is in the Old Testament. There is the rise then. Yeah. Of a the peaceable kingdom. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The stuff that Jesus you know, brings to the table and New Testament brings stands firmly on the tradition of the Old Testament and the prophets and the scriptures. Yeah, I absolutely, that's exactly right. Aaron, this has been fascinating. I hope that you'll follow this up. Are you going to write a few blogs for us and uh, lay this out a bit more? Yeah, I hope to. I think that'd be, it'd be uh, a really fun uh, thing to explore. Yeah. Well, I, this is, uh, I'm sure glad we could have this conversation and I could uh, at least make up a little for it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No problem. Our recording. So thanks a lot, yeah. Eric. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.